0: Hello everyone, and welcome to Multidisciplinary Dialogue, Clinical Rounds, and Case Reviews with your host, Dr. Anil Harrison, who is the Program Director and Chair of the Internal Medicine Residency Program at the University of Central Florida and HCA Florida West Hospital in Pensacola, Florida. Today we have diabetes case presentations that Dr. Harrison and Dr. Denny Sung will analyze and provide treatment insights. Dr. Sung is an internal medicine resident at St. Joseph's Medical Center Dignity Health in Stockton, California. The views of the speakers are their own and do not reflect the views of their respective institutions or the views of Consultant 360.
1: Good morning, everyone. Good morning, Dr. Harrison.
0: Good morning, everyone. I am Anil Harrison, and with me is Dr. Denny Sung.
1: Today, we intend to talk about a couple of scenarios. With diabetes and perhaps go over its management in general and its impact. Let's start. What questions do you have for me before we start discussing our cases on diabetes? What are the diagnostic criteria for diabetes mellitus?
0: That's a great question, Danny. So the diagnostic criteria for diabetes mellitus are: if a person has a hemoglobin A one C greater than six point five, or a fasting blood sugar that is more than one hundred and twenty six milligram percent, or If on a random blood sugar, if it's more than 200 milligram percent, on a glucose tolerance test, if you have any number that is over 200 milligram percent, that tells one that the person has diabetes. Thank you for that, Dr. Harrison.
1: Now let's start with our patient. This case is about a 60-year-old with a history of coronary artery disease who was recently admitted with a diagnosis of heart failure and has an injection fraction of 30%. Laboratory evaluation shows a hemoglobin A1C of 8.5%. Her medications include atorvastatin, 40 milligrams once a day, lisinopril, 40 milligrams once a day. And on physical exam, her blood pressure is at Target, which is below 130 over 80 millimeters of mercury. And she she has non-proliferative retinopathy. Her labs include an LDL cholesterol, which is less than 70 milligrams per and a GFR of 60. What will you do next?
0: Thank you, Denny. That is a great scenario. So, you know, before we begin talking about our patient, it is imperative that each treatment plan for a diabetic must be individualized. So let us first take a look at the glycemic targets. The ADA recommends a hemoglobin A1c of less than 7%, and they would like for a fasting blood sugar to be between 80 to 130 milligram percent, and postprandial blood sugars less than 180 milligram percent. The American Association of Endocrinology recommends an A1C of less than 6.5%, a fasting blood sugar that is less than 110, and a two-hour postprandial blood sugar of less than 140 milligram percent. So when we talk about lowering the hemoglobin's A1C, what really are we trying to achieve? Is it just a number that we have to get down? Or has this proven to reduce, number one, deaths related to diabetes, microvascular complications, myocardial infarctions? The answer is yes. So giving you an example, a reduction in the hemoglobin A1c by 1% reduces myocardial infarctions by 14%. Deaths related to diabetes by 21% and microvascular complications by 37%. So it is important, therefore, to get, you know, one's hemoglobin A1c below. And as I mentioned, with a 1% drop, there is a significant reduction in MIs, deaths, and also in microvascular complications. This therefore tells us that the approach to the management of diabetes must be individualized for every patient. If the risk for hypoglycemia is low, one would recommend one would be more stringent with diabetes control, as opposed to if the risk for hypoglycemia and adverse events was high, one should be less stringent in diabetes control. Similarly, depending on the disease duration, for example, if the diabetes is newly diagnosed, one should be more stringent as opposed to someone with long-standing diabetes where one can be less stringent. You'd agree, Denny, it makes sense also if a person has fewer comorbidities, one could be more stringent, as opposed to someone who has several comorbidities where one would be careful and less stringent in their diabetes control. Also, if a person does not have vascular complications, one should be more stringent. While if, on the other hand, if a person has significant vascular complications, bad CAD, bad PAD, bad kidneys, then one has to be less stringent in their diabetes control. Also, I'd like to mention, if resources are abundant, one can be more aggressive with diabetes control, as opposed to if the resources are lacking. Therefore, the individualized glycemic target has to be balanced with the benefits of stringent control versus the adverse events, including hypoglycemia, along with the cost of treatment. As you know, Dr. Song, there are 12 choices of medications for diabetes. You know, we have the sulfonylureas, the glinides, insulin, the GLP-1 analogs. GLP-1 is glucagon-like peptide, DPP-4 inhibitors. We've got the amylin analogs. We've got alpha-glucosidase inhibitors. We have cholecevolum. We have bromocryptine. We have SGLT-2 inhibitors, which stands for sodium glucose-like transporter-2 inhibitors we have bigonides, we have thiazolidinediones called TZDs. So of the 12 choices of current anti-hypoglycemic medications, remember, there are two categories, namely insulin and sulfonylureas, which need to be remembered, which can cause
1: hypoglycemia. Thank you very much for that, Dr. Harrison. Now we'll briefly get in touch with the algorithm on how to control a patient's blood sugar. So if you could explain a little bit about that, Dr. Harrison.
0: Sure, Dr. Sam. Out of all these, the guidelines recommend metformin as first-line therapy for type 2 diabetes, whether a person has atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease or not. The next thing to consider after putting a person on metformin is what is the patient's hemoglobin, A1c? If it is less than 9, then one should consider using a GLP-1 agonist or an SGLT-2 inhibitor. The other choices going down the line would be a DPP-4 inhibitor. And I've put an asterisk against the TZDs, sulfonylureas, and basal insulin for reasons that we will discuss later. If the hemoglobin A1c is more than 9, then one might consider a GLP-1 agonist before going to treating the person with insulin. Otherwise, starting with basal insulin is what is recommended if the hemoglobin A1c is more than 9. After you've done this, you might want to consider a GLP-1 agonist and or an SGLT-2 inhibitor. And if you go down the list, you could add a DPP-4 inhibitor or a thiazolidinedione, also called TZD. Remember, Dr. Sung, if cost is a consideration, which does happen on occasions, then along with lifestyle modifications and metformin, those would be your first line. Other medications which cost less would be your sulfonylureas, your TZDs, also called thiazolidinediones, and human insulin.
1: But Dr. Harrison, what would be a reason for choosing metformin as a first line agent?
0: That's a great question, Dr. Sung. You see, the advantages of metformin being that it reduces the hemoglobin A1c by 1 to 2%. Also, it is inexpensive. It has a high initial response rate. It does not cause weight gain. And as a matter of fact, it causes modest weight loss. It also has advantages with cholesterol and reduces macrovascular complications, which was observed in studies. UK PDS mentioned that it is cardioprotective. This should always, of course, be accompanied by lifestyle changes, which can also achieve reductions in hemoglobin A1c by 1 to 2%.
1: Does it have any disadvantages?
0: Absolutely, Dr. Sun. Anything that you take has its advantages and disadvantages. So the disadvantages of metformin would be you know, that it can cause uh, gastrointestinal side effects such as, and the most common one is diarrhea. And it usually happens with higher doses of metformin. Remember, metformin is contraindicated if the GFR is less than 30. One has to half the dose when the GFR is between 30 to 45. And remember, it is contraindicated when a person has congestive heart failure. Similarly, one must withhold metformin before surgery and imaging studies using iodinated media. By the way, it has a very small risk of causing lactic acidosis as well.
1: Thank you, Dr. Harrison. And what if after you start metformin, your hemoglobin A1c is still high? What would you do then?
0: So what... I would do after having begun metformin if the hemoglobin A1c is still not at goal. Starting either a GLP-1 agonist or an SGLT-2 inhibitor would be my next step, especially if the patient has risk factors for atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. Subsequently, if the hemoglobin A1c does not still come down, another choice would be to add a DPP-4 inhibitor. The above choices would precede the usage of TZDs, your thiazolidine sulfonylureas, glionides, and basal insulin, etc.
1: Thank you very much for that, Dr. Harrison. Now, could you talk a little bit more about the GLP-1 agonists and the SGLT-2 inhibitors, please? Absolutely, Dr. Sun. So
0: while deciding between a GLP-1 agonist or an SGLT-2 inhibitor, besides insurance coverage, the important thing while making a decision is, whether the patient would like oral formulations or injectable formulations. So the SGLT2 inhibitors are mostly oral preparations, while the GLP-1 agonists are mostly injectables. The GLP-1 agonists can lower hemoglobin A1c from 0.5 to 1.5, whereas the SGLT2 inhibitors lower the hemoglobin A1c from between 0.5 to 2.7. The GLP-1 agonists work by reducing gastric emptying, they cause early satiety, and they also increase insulin secretion while reducing glucagon secretion. So as we know, the DPP-4 inhibitors increase the half-life of GLP-1 agonists by inhibiting the enzyme that destroys GLP-1 agonists. The glucagon-like peptide GLP-1 agonists mimic the natural hormone that is produced by the intestines which stimulate the beta cells of pancreas to produce more insulin and while doing this to have an inhibitory effect on the glucagon production. This will also reduce gastric emptying to enable carbs being absorbed slowly. So while talking about the GLP-1 agonists in patients with type 2 diabetes, the short-acting ones are Exenatide and lixacenatide, while the long-acting ones are liraglutide daily, exanatide weekly, albiglutide, dulaglutide, semaglutide, which comes in the subcutaneous and oral forms. The GLP-1 agonists end with glutide, except for exanatide.
1: And what are some things that one might consider when using a GLP-1 agonist, Dr. Harrison?
0: Sure, Dr. Sung. So the advantages of a GLP-1 agonist are that it causes weight loss along with the benefits with, in, with the cardiovascular system. It, there is a reduction in cardiovascular events and it ranges from 13 to 25%. The GLP-1 agonists are also renoprotective, protective, which means they protect the kidneys. And it's also been shown that it the GFR decline gets lowered as time goes by. So in summary, a GLP-1 agonist helps reduce the incidence of heart attacks, strokes, and helps slow down the progression of kidney disease while intensifying to the injectable therapies in type 2 diabetes, which is before thinking of adding basal insulin. So it makes sense to consider a GLP-1 agonist before delving into using insulin. I'd like to also mention the injectable forms come in a pen form and are dosed either once daily or once weekly. As mentioned, semaglutide also has an oral form, pill form. Now, it has disadvantages. I'm talking about the GLP-1 agonists. They are expensive. Most of them are in the injectable form. They can cause GI side effects such as nausea, bloating, and fullness. The contraindications for GLP-1 use would be if there is a history of pancreatitis or if a person has a family history of a multiple endocrine neoplasia type 1 syndrome or if the patient has a personal or a family history of medullary thyroid cancer.
1: Thank you, Dr. Harrison. Now, you mentioned another category of diabetic medications, uh, something called an SGLT2 inhibitor. Could you tell us a bit on how they work and its benefits and some of its side effects, please?
0: Sure, Dr. Sun. So the SGLT2 inhibitors work by inhibiting the absorption of glucose in the proximal convoluted tubule at the s one segment. Therefore, it gets rid of the body's sugar along with calories. So it's a winner. As mentioned, SGLT2 inhibitors as monotherapy cause a drop in hemoglobin A1c between 0.5 to 1. Because you're losing sugar along with calories, SGLT2 inhibitors cause weight loss as well. With the SGLT2 outcome trials, it was found that SGLT2 inhibitors reduce cardiovascular risk for MI, stroke, and death by about 14%. And they are also useful for heart failure by reducing it from 20 to 30%. So therefore, the SGLT2 inhibitors like like the GLP-1 agonists are renoprotective. The SGLT2 inhibitors, uh, Dr. Sung, they end with the letters flozin, such as empagliflozin, canagliflozin, dapagliflozin, canagliflozin. So the disadvantages, it has disadvantages. I'm talking about the SGLT2 inhibitors. They cause glycosuria. And so there is a higher incidence of urinary tract infections, as well as genital fungal infections. By the way, The SGLT2 inhibitors can also cause non-hyperglycemic diabetic ketoacidosis, and they've also been found to increase the risk of fractures. Therefore, in the management of type 2 diabetes, GLP-1 agonists as well as the SGLT2 inhibitors are recommended for cardiovascular and renal protection. The beauty of using the GLP-1 agonist or the SGLT-2 antagonist is they should be considered independently of what the patient's baseline hemoglobin A1c is, or in trying to attempt an individualized hemoglobin A1c target. So you'd agree, Dr. Sung, taking the above three categories of medications, namely metformin, GLP-1 agonist, and SGLT-2 antagonist. It would make sense to start with metformin and independent of glycemic control, if there is established atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease or the patient is at high risk in folks with CKD or chronic kidney disease stage 3 or folks who have heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, you have to think about starting either a GLP-1 agonist or an SGLT-2 inhibitor. In some cases, the question might arise if the cost is a major issue. In that scenario, you start with metformin and consider sulfonylureas, TZDs, and human insulin.
1: Now, getting back to our case, and I will briefly read again about this case. It is about a 60-year-old patient with a history of coronary artery disease who was recently admitted with a diagnosis of heart failure, and an ejection fraction of 30%. Laboratory results review a hemoglobin A1c of 8.5. Some of her medications include atorvastatin 40 milligrams, lisinopril 40 milligrams, and physical exam shows a blood pressure, which is at target, and that is below 130 over 80 milliliters of mercury. And she also has non-proliferative retinopathy. And lastly, her LDL cholesterol has been less than 70 milligram percent, and she has a GFR of 60. Now for this patient, Dr. Harrison, how would you go about treating her diabetes and her management of diabetes?
0: Sure. Great question, Dr. Sam. So what I would do is uh, we will start with lifestyle changes, along with starting on metformin at 500 milligrams let's say twice a day, and then consider either adding a GLP-1 agonist or an SGLT-2 antagonist. And of course, we should also add low-dose aspirin. I'm glad that on atorvastatin in her LDL is below 70 milligram percent, and that is where we want it. So our thoughts being with lifestyle changes, we could reduce the hemoglobin A1c in our patient by 1 to 2 percent. We hope to reduce hemoglobin A1c by 1 to 2 percent with metformin, 05 to 1.55% with a GLP-1 agonist, and 05 to 0.7% with an SGLT2 inhibitor, taking into consideration that the latter two are being instituted, once again, independent of the patient's hemoglobin A1c.
1: That sounds great, Dr. Harrison. Thank you very much for that. Now, could we discuss about some of the other medications that can be used in a treatment of type 2 diabetes? And what is the order? in which you should use these different classes of medications?
0: Most certainly, Dr. Sun. While insulin can reduce hemoglobin A1C up to 3.5%, sulfonylureas can reduce hemoglobin A1C by one to 2%. While the long-acting insulins might be expensive, the other formulations of insulin along with sulfonylureas are inexpensive. Though, remember, both insulin and sulfonylureas can cause weight gain, and hypoglycemia. With sulfonylureas, we are not sure about the cardiovascular safety and they have to be used with caution in patients with hepatic and renal dysfunction. As far as the lipid goes or the lipid panel goes, with blood sugar lowering, this might help in reductions with triglycerides. We also have the DPP-4 inhibitors. The advantages of these medications being that they are weight neutral. They also have a favorable adverse effect profile. They do not cause hypoglycemia. They have no contraindications in folks with heart failure and renal insufficiency, and they can be used as monotherapy and also with sulfonylureas, TZDs, metformin, and even insulin. The disadvantages of the DPP-4 inhibitors being that it can cause nasopharyngitis, upper respiratory infections, and the cost on occasion can be prohibitive. The DPP-4 inhibitors reduce hemoglobin A1C between 05 to 0.8%, and they end with gliptin, such as alogliptin, linagliptin, saxagliptin, cetagliptin, and wildagliptin. Remember the TZDs, the one that is available in the market is pioglitazone, and it has the advantages of re- reducing the hemoglobin A1C by 1% to 2%, And they also reduce insulin resistance. By the way, they do not cause hypoglycemia. They are inexpensive and can be dosed as once daily and also have, these medications also have cardiovascular protection. The disadvantages being weight gain, slow onset of action. They can cause edema. They can worsen heart failure and they do cause osteopenia and bone fractures. So you'd agree, Dr. Sung, what we have learned with the management of type 2 diabetes with lifestyle modifications, which are very important. Metformin would be the first medication to be added with care being instituted when the GFR drops below 45. And in that scenario, you halve the dose of metformin. And you definitely stop metformin if the GFR falls below 30. The next thing to consider is if the patient has significant atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease or is at high risk such as age greater than 55 or the patient has coronary carotid or lower extremity stenosis greater than 50% or if the patient has left ventricular hypertrophy, it is advised to start the patient on a GLP-1 agonist or an SGLT-2 inhibitor. If further intensification is required to lower the A1c after using a GLP-1 agonist or an SGLT-2 inhibitor, the next choice would be a DPP-4 inhibitor, followed by basal insulin, followed by TZDs, followed by sulfonylureas. On the other hand, if heart failure or CKD, chronic kidney disease, predominates, especially for heart failure with reduced ejection fraction less than 45% and GFR between 30 to 60, an SGLT2 inhibitor will predominate. If one cannot use an SGLT2 inhibitor or further hemoglobin A1C lowering is required, then add a GLP-1 agonist. SGLT2 inhibitors should be avoided if the GFR is less than 30, 3, 0. Having said that, TZDs should be avoided in folks with heart failure, and therefore a DPP-4 inhibitor would be the next medication to be added, followed by basal insulin and last of all, sulfonylureas.
1: So this case is a 22-year-old female with a history of type 1 diabetes that was diagnosed over 15 years ago, who's presenting with multiple episodes of hypoglycemia that happens during the night. Her finger stick blood sugars range from 70 to 280 milligram percent. She takes insulin glargine 30 units at night and six units of Lispro before meals. And she also has a correctional factor with insulin scale insulin. She also has a correctional factor with sliding scale insulin for blood sugars greater than 180 milligram percent. Labs include a blood glucose of 180 milligram percent, hemoglobin A1c of 8.5% and GFR of 60 milliliters per minute.
0: So the two important things that we realize with our patient are suboptimal glycemic control since her hemoglobin A1c is at 8.5 along with our patient who also happens to have multiple episodes of nocturnal hypoglycemia which is not good. Studies have revealed that only 10 to 30% with type 1 diabetes have optimal glycemic control, and that is a shame. The other thing is the occurrence of severe hypoglycemia is at about 6%. For folks receiving insulin after the age of 50, it goes up to 10%. Another important aspect is what is the occurrence of diabetic ketoacidosis in relation to a person's hemoglobin A1c? With the hemoglobin A1c ranging from seven to eight percent, the incidence is less than two percent. However, if the hemoglobin A1c is at ten, the incidence of DKA goes up to about ten percent. And if the hemoglobin A1c is at eleven or more, the chances of DKA are at about seventeen percent. It is also a well-known fact that intensive insulin therapy versus Conventional therapy provides a greater reduction of the development of retinopathy. Therefore, Dr. Sung, you'd agree goals of treatment are to prevent acute and long-term complications while maintaining target glucose.
1: Thank you, Dr. Harrison. So, how do we proceed from here? Should we institute a multiple daily injections of rapid-acting insulin with meals combined with a daily basal insulin, or do you think a continuous subcutaneous insulin infusion using an insulin pump or a closed loop system, like an artificial pancreas, if this method would be better?
0: That's a great question, Dr. Sun. So let's take our patient first. Our patient was checking fingerstick blood sugars four to five times a day. How feasible is that? What are the limitations? And remember, finger stick blood sugars only measure blood glucose levels in a single point in time and provides no indication of the direction or the velocity of changing glucose levels. For example, if a fingerstick blood sugar done right now is 100 milligram percent, it doesn't tell one how have the sugars been in the past several hours and where are the sugars headed in the future? fingerstick blood sugars also frequently miss hypoglycemic events, in particular when the patient might be asymptomatic or asleep. Therefore, Dr. Sung, it makes sense that we institute continuous subcutaneous insulin infusion via an insulin pump or a closed-loop system, also called an artificial pancreas, with, very importantly, along with continuous glucose monitoring, which is also called
1: CGM. That makes sense. However, what should we do?
0: So to circumvent these issues, a continuous form of monitoring would be better. This would tell one the blood sugars at any point. It should tell one the history and the graph with presets for low blood sugars and high blood sugars. It'll also tell you your daily, your weekly, your monthly averages, and hence the advent of and the use of CGM or continuous glucose monitoring, which tells one your average glucose, what is the pattern, what percent is in range, what percent is below range or above range. Meta-analysis of continuous glucose monitoring has shown great evidence and utility. If one can monitor the blood sugar continuously, wouldn't it make more sense that the insulin supply should also be in tune? The insulin pump, also called continuous subcutaneous insulin infusion, offers a continuous administration of rapid acting insulin analogs via a small subcutaneous plastic catheter with the amount of insulin to be administered, predetermined by the provider, and then included in the pump
1: settings. That sounds great, Dr. Harrison. Could you talk a little bit more about these subcutaneous insulin pumps?
0: Absolutely. So the anatomy of the insulin pump offers a small flexible plastic cannula, which is inserted into the subcutaneous tissue by a small retractable needle. There is a tubing which connects to the insulin reservoir, which holds about 200 to 300 units of insulin. For pump therapy, the glucose on the meter transmits the readings to the pump to assist with bolus-calculator dosing. The sensor talks to the pump to suspend when it reaches hypoglycemic threshold or before low glucose occurs. With a hybrid closed-loop system in recent years, the development of closed-loop systems, which links insulin delivery to sensor glucose levels, have started to transform management of type 1 diabetes. These closed-loop systems utilize an algorithm that automatically adjusts insulin delivery via an insulin pump based on real-time sensor glucose levels. So Dr. Song, in conclusion, to improve care in type 1 diabetes, the major advances in diabetes technology include the ability to use CGM or continuous glucose monitoring values to make treatment decisions, remote monitoring, data reporting, and management. Platforms and progressive integration of continuous glucose monitoring along with insulin pumps for type 1
1: diabetes. Thank you very much, Dr. Harrison. Now, could you talk a little bit about basal and bolus insulin and how does one go about calculating the amount to be given to a patient?
0: That's a good question, again, Dr. Sun. So, you'd agree it is worthwhile to discuss the basal and bolus doses of insulin required in a patient. The total daily insulin requirement equals 0.55 or 55% times the total weight in kilograms. And of the total amount that you calculate, 40% can be given as basal insulin, whereas 60% can be given with males. The prandial calculation is done using carb counting. One should think of one unit of insulin for about 12 to 15 grams of carbohydrates. One should also take care of the correction factor. Now, how do you do that? The correction factor is the patient's blood sugar minus 100 divided by the total amount of insulin calculated for the day, which means, for example, if the patient's blood sugar is 300. So 300 minus 100 equals 200. And you divide this by the total amount of insulin, which, for example, was calculated at 55 units in 100 kilogram person. This would equal something in the range of receiving three to four units of insulin as a correction factor. So on our patient, what I would recommend on the 22-year-old that you mentioned with a history of type 1 diabetes for over 15 years, presenting with multiple episodes of hypoglycemia during the night, with finger stick blood sugars ranging from 70 to 280 and 80 milligram percent uh, who takes insulin glargine 30 units at night and six units of Lispro before meal and a correction factor uh, according to the sliding scale insulin for blood sugars greater than 80 milligram, 180 milligram percent. Uh, what I would recommend is the institution of a continuous glucose monitoring and using an insulin pump. Because it would make more sense to help better control of diabetes in this patient and also avoid episodes of hypoglycemia and also help prevent progression of complications related to poorly controlled diabetes. So those are my thoughts, Dr.
1: Sir. Thank you, Dr. Harrison, for your great knowledge and your insights on diabetes management. Thank you, everyone, for listening in. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, everyone.